Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Islamophobia is a growing problem in the West. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, Islamophobia is the fear, hatred of or prejudice against the Islamic religion or Muslims generally. The term was first used prominently in the late 1990s here in Britain after the Runnymede Trust concluded anti-Muslim prejudice has grown so considerably and so rapidly in recent years that a new item in the vocabulary is needed. However, it was after the attacks of 9-11 that it became of serious concern and Muslim groups across the West were formed to address what they saw as the civil rights issue of our time. Today we have Daniel Hakikatju from the United States to discuss Islamophobia and the Muslim response to it. Daniel is a Muslim academic and founder of the US-based Al-Asna Institute. He writes at muslimskeptic.com and he also regularly contributes to a number of outlets such as the Washington Post, The Atlantic, CNN Al Jazeera, Public Discourse and Mashabu. He is a speaker for the Muslim Debate Initiative where you may find a number of links to lectures he has given over the years. Daniel was born in Houston, Texas, and comes from what he describes as a liberal secular Muslim background. He studied physics as an undergraduate at Harvard University and completed graduate studies in philosophy, studying with some of the top physicists and philosophers in the world, including multiple Nobel Prize winners. He has also studied Islam as an academic discipline. His study of philosophy has, he argued, enabled him to get an insight into the liberal mindset and consolidated his view that liberalism is at odds with Islam and that liberal society looks to challenge and in fact change Islam. Daniel, it is fair to say, is not far from controversy. 
In an interview for the Five Pillars website, he argued, Islam is facing extinction in America. But it's his take on the current state of Muslim activism and scholarship which has attracted the most attention. In an article for Muslim Matters in 2017, he warned, Our responses to Islamophobia is destroying us from within. Today on The Thinking Muslim, I want to explore his arguments further. If Islamophobia is a problem, then how can there be a right or wrong response to it? Daniel, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to The Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah. Thank you for having me. Now, let, let's start with, uh, I suppose, my definition of Islamophobia in, in my introduction. So uh, I, I defined it as the fear, hatred of or prejudice against Islam as a religion or the Muslims generally. Uh, in your mind, is this an accurate uh, definition of, of Islamophobia? And if so, is it the greatest problem Muslims face in the West? Well, I think it is a conceptually problematic uh, term, Islamophobia. And I have critiqued this term in the past. And uh, I think we can get into that a little bit in terms of what I find so uh, difficult with the concept of Islamophobia. But um, just to directly answer your question, I do think that there is hatred of Muslims and Islam in the West and in the East. I, I do think that there's a lot of animosity towards Islam and Muslims, and this is not something new historically. Okay, so regardless of what you call it and how you term it, there is, of course, uh, immense Im animosity towards Islam uh, here in, in the West. Um, and uh, hatred towards uh, Muslims uh, is often born out of an irrationality, uh, a, a a fear that Muslims are responsible for um, terrorism and uh, have got some malign intent uh, on uh, on non-Muslim society. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there are there's a lot of misunderstanding or complete misinformation about Muslims and Islam. But it's not usually one thing. Uh, the typical uh, example of an Islamophobe will have those kinds of uh, perceptions about Muslims and Islam and a variety of other things. And I think that the best way to react to those people is not to portray them as being irrationally biased right And there is different types of people, right? But I think that within um, our Western context, a lot of the average person, like your neighbor or the person you might see on the street or your classmate, most of them are suffering from ignorance uh, to different extents. And the best way to react to them and respond is, I think, through a conversation, uh, through you know that kind of a relation back and forth, as opposed to denouncing them as you're an Islamophobe, therefore you're a racist, you're a bigot. All of those terms have a certain, um, uh, come with certain baggage and are, are situated in a certain kind of discourse that I don't think leads to anything productive and is not conformant with da'wah and calling people to Islam. So where does this hatred for Islam come from then, Daniel? Or the main perpetrators of, of Islam, uh, Islamophobia 
are seen as, oh, your average, you know, old white person in the grocery store who might give the uh, hijabi Muslim with a hijab a dirty look or might, you know, say, mutter something stupid under his breath. And these are the examples that are really promoted uh, within um, social media and so forth. I think that this is a distraction or it's kind of diverting attention from the real proponents of Islamophobia, which are found on the right and the left politically and at the highest levels of government. And so I think we can't be distracted by simple examples of the, of the grocery store. It's just someone who is ignorant and can easily be, uh, have his mind changed through a positive interaction with a Muslim or uh, anything like that. Okay, that's really interesting. So let me explore this further. You say that um, uh, Islamophobia in its in its most pernicious form comes from government and comes from both the left and the right of the political spectrum. Now, I can understand the right, of course, um, Donald Trump and uh, uh, Viktor Orban and, and uh, many others on the right uh, who uh, spout um, pretty repulsive things against uh, Islam. Uh, but 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 you you seem to imply that it's not just a phenomenon of the right, but also uh, it's a problem uh, that the liberal left uh, uh, also have a a problem with. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so much. There's a lot of hatred of Islam within the left wing, and I can point to many examples of the attitudes that the left wing uh, has expressed and political positions that they've pursued. And my experience is more in the United States. And, you know, I was, uh, I had come of age uh, throughout Obama's presidency. And I was very sensitive to his understanding of Islam, his treatment of Muslims, because I had gone through living under George Bush, George W. Bush, and post 9-11, and all the kind of uh, policies that were put in place to uh, monitor Muslims, to uh, detain Muslims, to deport Muslims, to prevent Muslims from uh, creating groups and so forth. Uh, so I was very sensitive. Okay, Obama's talking about hope and change. Well, let's see, what is this change? Uh, is it going to pan out? And it became very clear very quickly uh, to me, and not only me, but even civil rights groups, uh, such as the ACLU. Uh, that no, actually substantively Obama did not change many of the policies that were enacted under George W. Bush under the auspices of the global war on terror. And then even in my, in my personal experience, you know, I went to a very liberal school at Harvard and very educated people there, professors who are squarely within the left wing and the attitudes that they would uh, events and the kinds of things that they would say in class or outside of class were very hateful towards Islam. They had a, you could tell, a deep hatred of what Islam calls to submission to God. What, what is that? <laughs> that is uh, completely backwards, anti-civilization, anti-society, completely contrary to progress. So the, the elite left intellectuals have as much, like if you put Donald Trump in a, in a room at, at one of these places, or you go to a dinner party, uh, and he's there with 
you know, any number of elite leftists, their attitude toward Islam is not going to be substantively different. I mean, that's really interesting. Um, and it goes against common perceptions. Um, I mean, the belief is that life was freer for Muslims in the American context under Barack Obama. You know, at the moment, uh, at least from where we're sitting, uh, it seems like um, things are pretty poor for Muslims in in America under Trump's America. And, uh, you know, Trump has emboldened uh, the right. Uh, we've seen the rise of um, white nativism. Um, we've seen the rise of um, of, uh, of a very sort of a very uh, on your nose um, hatred towards uh, towards Islam, but, but but you seem to be implying that this is no more than a continuation of the Obama era policies. Well, there is subjectivity, and there is personal feeling, and there is actual objective fact, and so I'd like to see it substantiated that. Uh, you know, what you said, that Muslims were freer under uh, Barack Obama in, in the U.S. context. Uh, that wasn't what I subjectively felt. I actually felt uh, that Muslims were under more surveillance, uh, more scrutiny, more negativity under Barack Obama's regime. And there's actual objective facts to uh, substantiate that when it came to um, monitoring programs uh, they expanded under Obama uh, in many parts of the country, actually. Um, when it came to NSA surveillance, uh, that expanded under Obama. Not, And this is what Edward Snowden leaked and revealed about, actually, the NSA under Obama. The FBI, their targeting of the Muslim community uh, expanded. I would say that they became a little bit more sophisticated under Obama and a little bit more diplomatic under Obama, but their policies of targeting the Muslim community were uh, as pernicious, if not more dangerous. Uh, under Obama, you had a huge jump in the number of entrapment cases. And we can go into entrapment, but this was reported in many outlets, including the Rolling Stone magazine, where they reported how the FBI will target uh, usually someone who might have mental problems or has a criminal background of petty theft or, or things like that, a Muslim who is naive for all intents and purposes, and they'll send an informant to radicalize this individual and basically goad this person into expressing a desire for committing a terroristic act. And then the FBI swoops in and says, oh, we caught another domestic homegrown terrorist. We, we foiled the plot. And this is why the, you know, all of this money that we're getting from your tax, from tax dollars uh, to uh, prop up these anti-terror programs in the FBI and, and so forth and, and Homeland Security, the, it's worth it. So we have to go beyond the optics and, and dig deeper. Well, I would say that we have to have an understanding of politics that goes beyond the optics and the public relations, right? Uh, again, I go back to Obama, who was considered to be really the ultimate example of the tolerant, uh, cosmopolitan, multicultural uh, commander-in-chief, leader, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, and he's really the model that all of these other uh, 
presidents and prime ministers really uh, seem to try to live up to. But if you actually look at Obama beyond the public image, beyond the pleasantries, beyond the token uh, nods to the Muslim community and the White House iftars and the so on and so forth, then, okay, substantively show me uh, what is he doing to curb Zionism? What is he doing to curb uh, expansion and intervention, quote unquote, in occupation of the Muslim world, not only militarily, but economically. Okay, these, this is really the brass tacks that we should be uh, using to determine where our alliances are and where our loyalties are just on a mental level or spiritual level, not the, the optics, because the colonizer uh, is well aware that uh, people are persuaded through their eyes. And so the colonizer will come and wear the shalwar kameez or will wear the traditional Muslim clothes, will wear a turban, will come in riding the elephant and will, uh, you know, to, to use crude orientalist uh, stereotypes. But uh, yeah, they understand that this is what is going to uh, affect a, a large portion of the masses. So we shouldn't be subject to that kind of manipulation. We should uh, think beyond it. Now let's get to the article I mentioned at the very beginning of um, my introduction, um, where you discuss our response to Islamophobia. Um, in your article, you draw upon a piece, How Liberalism Has Destroyed the American Jewish Identity, uh, written by David Harsaini. Uh, what parallels are you drawing between the Muslim community today and the Jewish experience in uh, in America? Well, to keep it short, uh, with Jewish Americans, what this author is pointing out is that uh, when surveyed, Jewish Americans do not consider theology or even uh, Jewish Orthodox law to be a very significant part of their identity. And so the, this author bemoans that and says that, well, then what is the purpose of really being a Jew other than, okay, we have a certain cuisine or a shared culture, but there's not really anything transcendent or significant beyond that. And so he doesn't really get into certain um, making certain inferences. The inference that I made and what I noted with the, the surveys that he cites is that one of the most important things that Jews identify as part of their identity is remembrance of the Holocaust. And I thought that that was very interesting because uh, having a this kind of uh, anxiety or remembrance of something traumatic and uh, usually devastating like a genocide uh, that can affect a person psychologically it can affect a community psychologically and spiritually and so you know i made the inference that perhaps there the suggestion that perhaps there's a connection there between the loss of faith and a kind of moving away from orthodoxy and this kind of overwhelming sense of fear. And I think that logically it makes sense. I cited certain studies to back up my uh, conclusions, but you have a 
sociological dynamic where a minority group within a majority context, if they feel anxiety, if they feel like they're being pressured or they are being under siege by the majority, they will react in a certain kind of way. And what I was pointing out that some of the reaction is to uh, lose a sense of uh, theological, the importance of theology, the importance of religious principles. There is a pressure to compromise those in order f- uh, to adopt the majoritarian uh, values, ideals, um, and overall paradigm. And so that clearly has happened to Jews in the West. And it seems like, and my anticipation is that it can happen to Muslims as well, or is in the process of happening. Uh, And what feeds into that is, again, this anxiety, this kind of feeling that, oh, we're under siege in such a way that we're on the brink of genocide. Because if the alternative, and this is why I say in the paper, if really that is what you think you are facing, you think as a community that you're going to be destroyed and you're on this existential moment, then you can justify any kind of compromise to your faith, to your uh, theology, to uh, Islamic law, and so on and so forth. But but Daniel, do you not feel that um, uh, you're underplaying uh, the fear that's felt uh, across Muslim communities in the West? Um, I mean, just think about the American mass incarceration camps that were introduced during the um, Second World War for the Japanese. Uh, in the UK here, we had uh, internment uh, that targeted the Irish community. Um, I mean, just look around the world. The Chinese have no problem in in incarcerating large numbers of Muslims in these so-called re-education camps. Um, uh, Nigel Farage, he's a political leader here in the UK, and uh, he speaks openly about... Um, uh, supporting the internment of something like 23,000 persons of interest, he calls them. Uh, just consider Fox News uh, that routinely talk about uh, locking up Islamists. Um, these are people who don't necessarily believe in violence, but but actually people who believe uh, in a uh, in a politicized interpretation of Islam. Um, so are these? Uh, is it as far fetched? as uh, you make out that um you know a maybe not a genocide uh, but a a far more uh, uh problematic policy towards the muslims is uh, uh, is being concocted uh, amongst western policymakers well i think that that's one question right uh, how far fetched is it really uh, i think that it's not really a viable political position uh, within uh, U.S. politics and U.K. politics. I think the examples that you cited were would be recognized as very extreme, and especially within the U.S. in the Trump era. Maybe in the Obama era, you could have the right wing expressing this kind of anti-Muslim sentiment uh, regarding deter- uh, internment and so forth. And that actually... <laughs> Uh, was the case. You did have certain right-wing politicians make those kinds of claims. But in the Trump era, it's been completely um, made taboo. You don't see any right-wing politicians actually talking about interning Muslims because that is such a flashpoint. And you have had the left really um, 
active, uh, activated on this issue of Muslim rights because of Trump and because of his open disdain for Muslims in his election run and first year in office, that the left has been mobilized to support and defend Muslims. So it's become, uh, and this is why I, I wrote an article that Trump is surprisingly, why Trump is surprisingly good for Muslims is that the left has been uh, basically uh, agitated into supporting Muslims more than they were when Obama was in office. And this is this sh shows in a lot of different uh, public opinion surveys and the um, favorability of Muslims in the public eye. Uh, but when it comes to okay, so that's one issue. Is it really far fetched? I think it is, but you, you're free to disagree. The other question is that okay, if we concede that okay, this is a possibility then uh, what kind of compromises does one make? <laughs> what kind of uh, concessions does the, one make to one's faith? And if it's the case, so the whole reason that Muslims would, Muslims are not a race, right? Being Muslim means you subscribe to a set of beliefs. You can uh, avoid internment. You can avoid discrimination by apostatizing, by saying that, okay, well, I no longer believe this, I no longer believe this, I no longer accept this in Islam. That's one very clean, easy solution to avoiding this kind of uh, scrutiny, hatred, or even internment. But if, so are we going to preempt that? Are we going, if the whole reason that we're being, uh, scrutinized and detained and harassed and surveilled is because of our beliefs because that's what makes us muslim so we're going to just preemptively just drop those beliefs we're going to preemptively just leave islam we're going to preemptively water down every aspect of our faith uh because of that pressure so we're doing the job of our enemies for them do you see what i'm saying so that so that's the question it, it, muslims have always been a minority, right, in, in the sense of a uh, aggressive, antagonistic majority wanting to snuff out the religion. That has always been the case from uh, the Prophet ﷺ, peace be upon him, in Mecca, uh, even in Medina, uh, even beyond that, you had the entire world against, the, against Islam. And so that's always been our condition, but you didn't see and you have not seen amongst the prophet, peace be upon him, his generation, the companions, the predecessors, all those, they didn't compromise religion. They didn't compromise the tenets of their faith to the extent or to what anything comparable to what is being called for uh, by some Muslims allying with the left and claiming that, oh, we're going to be detained. So we need to maybe not emphasize that Islam is the uh, truth. Islam is the uh, path to salvation exclusively. Islam does not accept some of these uh, sexual practices that have been popularized only within the past five years and so forth. Right. So that's really interesting. So your argument is that um, the specter of genocide or perceived genocide is pushing the Muslim community to make uh, a series of concessions. Um, can you please tell us more about these concessions? Where are these concessions being made in, in your eyes? Uh, on the issue of perennialism and whether other religions are uh, valid and salvific, if you can uh, be saved 
uh, and God will accept uh, someone who is who rejects Islam but is a Christian or a Jew or atheist or anything else. Um, that's another area where we see a lot of uh, concessions being made by Muslims and organizations. Different feminist understandings of uh, Islam, whether, you know, should our prayer spaces um, be situated such that men and women pray side by side? I mean, maybe this is unheard of within the UK, but in the, in the US, uh, this unfortunately is taking place. Uh, it started on the university campuses and now it's uh, expanding into actual masajid where you have, okay, you have feminist voices saying it's not fair that women are in the back. Uh, and in fact, women should be uh, side by side. Why not? And you shouldn't put a partition between the men and women either, because that is uh, shaming women or whatever nonsense. I'm interested in um, in what you call self-censorship. I mean, it seems to me that uh, by far the most um, prominent um, uh, position that some Muslims have taken uh, as a result of this perceived fear uh, is to uh, stop uh, reciting some uh, controversial verses of Quran or to, uh, to, to, to hide away from making some, um, uh, some, you know, some of the, uh, the more controversial points, I suppose, that comes from scripture. Um, how do you see self-censorship and how does that play uh, into this discussion you, you, you cite about, um, about this fear which is enveloping the Muslim community? Yes, uh, so you have an example, a clear example of something that uh, Allah is criticizing the people of the book for in the Quran, that you teach part of the book and you conceal part of it. Uh, and Allah condemns those who do that, who selectively will teach and cite revelation uh, for their own purposes, uh, whatever that might be. And so, unfortunately, I have imams who will tell me and scholars who teach at the mosque who will con confide in me and tell me that look uh daniel like this is a problem that i have i'll be teaching uh, a certain part of the religion whether it be fiqh whether it be tafsir of the quran and i'll skip certain abweb certain chapters because i know that the uh my audience is not prepared to hear that and i don't know how to prepare them for that they'll be incensed if they uh you know get uh, catch wind of what the tradition actually is and what even what the quran actually is um and, and this is an example that i use like what how many verses of the quran uh, what percentage of the quran is politically incorrect uh, is it 50%? Is it 60%? Any verse about, any ayah about hellfire is politically incorrect. Uh, and, and you'd have hesitation. And I have seen hesitation uh, on the mimbar or even in public discourse. Even when it's a, a fully Muslim audience, hesitation to cite hellfire or verses ayah that, that mention an-nar and jahannam and so forth. Why? Well, this is something that it's Allah is condemning certain people for their beliefs and their actions. That's judgmental. We cannot judge people. We have to be, <laughs> we have to be tolerant. We have to accept diversity. 
so this is politically incorrect. We, so all verses about Hellfire are out. Um, let's see, any verse that, well, so many verses are about the male prophets. Well, where are, where are the female MBA? Where are the female uh, examples that by name? Well, there are none in the Quran uh, and, and there aren't female prophets. So, okay, that's politically incorrect. How about the creation of humanity as a whole? Okay, well, uh, Adam, peace be upon him, he was the first uh, creation, human being, but he's a man. <laughs> and women were not with him, not created with him. His, his spouse was created later, so that seems to give preferential treatment to men. That's misogynistic. Or recently, um, you had the U.S. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who, who uh, infamously was quoted as saying, uh, my Allah is a she, because the, the male pronoun, uh, he, is sexist. And so how can we, so all of the verses that where Allah uses the word huwa to describe himself, to refer to himself, those, those are all out. Okay, so what's left, what's left of the Quran that we're going to teach uh, and communicate to the next generation or our community? It's almost nothing, just maybe some verses on, oh, Allah has created us in different Colors so that we and and nations and tribes so that we and tongues so that we know each other. I mean that beautiful ayah and extremely important uh, ayah. Uh, but the entire Quran is important. The entire Quran is beautiful. Everything within the book needs to be taught and conveyed. You can't just select one ayah that happens to coincide with a popular sentiment, uh, even if that popular sentiment is correct, and just emphasize that at expense of everything else. Now, Daniel, some of your critics would argue that um, taking this, um, uh, essentially, it's an essentialist uh, view of Islam, that Islam is the truth and um, we should be uh, pretty proud of, of our uh, Islamic belief system. Well, taking this stance may lead to uh, more assertive uh, and malign policies that come from government. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, our our stance can lead to uh, a, a a government position which uh, which becomes harsher uh, towards uh, towards our community. Now, you know, I'm I'm thinking about across Europe. Uh, we we've seen a a great number of uh, of states that have sort of lurched to the right um, or or lurched to the sort of liberal left to. Who um, who who are united in in their um, uh, their quest to ban the niqab and to ban the burqa and to uh, and to um, uh, stop Muslims from um, uh, building uh, lots of mosques and um, close down Islamic schools. So isn't that a, a potential consequence of um, uh, of of taking this very essentialist um, um, uh, stance when it comes to when it comes to Islam? Well, I think that that's a separate question. I think that we have to, just stepping back, um, disassociate this idea that the attitudes that we take as a community are going to have a, um, you know, a significant impact on government policy. Okay? The community has been conservative. The community, uh, ha the tenor of the community has been very liberal recently. But there are bigger factors, geopolitical uh, factors that come into play when it comes to the gov to government policy. 
Um, so I think that there needs to be a level of distance. I'm not saying that they're not related at all because you do have public sentiment. Okay. And I think that's really where, uh, Dawah calling to Islam and uh, politics uh, can converge for us in a productive way. If, if we, uh, because when I, I think that insisting on the truth, that in itself is not politically problematic. Uh, insisting on religious truth is because of you know secularism, um, and, and that's not consistent because other kinds of truths, non-religious truths, you can be exclusivist as you want. You can even be militaristically uh, exclusivist. Look at, um, for example, some of these uh, pro-abortion activists. You know they're exclusivist about the quote-unquote woman's right to choose. Uh, and they're willing to go out and march uh, for that right and disrupt and even become violent for that. Uh, that's not seen as a problem. That's seen as, okay, you're, that's political participation and you're entitled to uh, that. So uh, there's not an issue with Muslims being exclusivist as far as the truth of Islam or the uh, commitment of Islam. We should be uh, exclusivist and particularist because that's what Islam is. It's a particularist religion. There, it's not like everyone, whoever, you can believe anything that you want and you can do whatever you want and that is acceptable. Uh, that being said, just because we are um, uh, exclusivist and particularist when it comes to theology, that doesn't mean we are physically isolated or that we are ghettoized, uh, as the pejorative term is. Uh, we can still... Uh, interact and we should interact with others but we interact on our own terms uh, we are involved with our neighbors we are involved with our community a larger uh, non-muslim community on our own terms right uh, and i think that that people respect that people appreciate that and that allows us to be liked uh, and, and to soften people's hearts uh, towards us and towards Islam. We don't uh, achieve that if we kind of say, well, let's abandon our exclusivist theological commitments. Let's just buy into this uh, liberal, secular, multiculturalism wholesale and become just another ethnic minority. Uh, I think that, first of all, people don't respect that. People can tell uh, that you're compromising your true beliefs just to fit in. Uh, people are sensitive to that, so that's counterproductive. Uh, and then, you know, it's as far as government internment and uh, surveillance and so forth, uh, there are plenty of ethnic minorities that have been hammered and interned and uh, uh, discriminated against, not because of having exclusivist religious beliefs, but because of other aspects of who they might be from a particular country or a certain skin color or what have you. So what are, what are Muslims really trying to achieve? Like you're, you are sacrificing your faith and gaining nothing by it, gaining no security, gaining no protection, gaining no acceptance. It's just lose, 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 lose. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I suppose in, in your view, uh, this um, tendency to, uh, to water down uh, Islamic uh, principles um, comes from a, a determination from the liberal uh, West uh, to uh, 
to disinvest Muslims of their core religious principles. This is the nature of liberal secularism. The entire project, and this is what I teach in my classes on liberalism, the entire project is to completely liquidate all uh, cultures, values, and philosophies that can contradict uh, with its moral mandate. And so, yeah, of course, Muslims are going to be the victims, have been the victims since the beginning of the colonial project uh, of this project, uh, this liberal project. So we have to resist. But at the end of the day, uh, there are many, there are few avenues. Uh, some people will say, well, you can make hitra. You can uh, leave the UK. You can leave the US. Okay, maybe uh, putting aside the question of how that can be done on a mass scale, where where can we go? Should we go to Egypt, where you have uh, President Sisi, who is going to you know bring the secret police to detain you and basically kidnap you and maybe uh, torture and kill you uh, if you're expressing uh, certain kinds of Islamic positions, traditional positions, or maybe should we should we go to Saudi? Or maybe we should go to Jordan or where, where is, where is this country? Or should we go to Brunei, <laughs> right? The, the, should we go to one of these uh, uh, Southeast Asian countries that are also secularizing, that are also, so th this kind of, you know, suffocating pressure is encompassing the entire globe. It's not just a local to local to specific countries. Now in the, in the West, um, we know that there is a push to integrate Muslims into uh, uh, into wider society, and um, uh, essentially, policymakers have devised a, a project of multiculturalism uh, to uh, to bring together uh, disparate groups of disparate cultures um, uh, and 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 create some form of social relationships between them. Uh, by which uh, multiple cultures can exist. Um, what, what's your what's your view about uh, the project of multiculturalism that we see across Europe and and indeed in America? So multicultural Muslims are the most multi multicultural uh, religion because we have. If you go to the masjid, you will uh, in the U.S. I'm sure in parts of the U.K. as well. You'll see people from all different countries, all different cultures, and they're all on one uh, theology uh, and one belief in God and his prophet. So uh, that aspect of multiculturalism, of course, is perfectly benign and encouraged and, and something that's very beautiful. Multiculturalism politically as a project is to, uh, you know, counterintuitively is, is to homogenize uh, all of these different minority groups uh, on the basis of a shared morality and a shared political vision. Um, and, and to say that things like uh, we, we tolerate diversity when it comes to cuisine, when it comes to certain kinds of fashions, as long as it's not like hijab or niqab, we tolerate uh, certain kinds of, uh, I don't know, languages, but there is no, uh, ideological diversity that we tolerate. No, when it comes to ideology, ideology, everyone needs to be liberal, secular. Everyone needs to be feminist. Everyone needs to recognize the authority of the state to determine uh, right and wrong and to determine how you raise your children and what is going to be taught in schools and to what, what is appropriate for public consumption through mass media and through academia. No, the state and state institutions 
determine uh, all of those things. So more, there is no diversity permissible when it comes to, to that, but you distract from the totalitarian nature of the state by pretending like, no, no, we are completely open to diversity and tolerance, but it's about those aspects of life that in the grand scheme of things is, are, are um, you know, the tertiary, secondary tertiary, like what kind of cuisine that you have eat, like, okay, uh, if you're going to have at the White House or, you know, serving curry as opposed to hamburgers, uh, am I supposed to be impressed by that? <laughs> am, I, am I supposed to think that, wow, you're, you're so accepting of uh, other cultures? No. Daniel, you've been very critical of um, uh, the representatives uh, that have recently uh, entered Congress, um, uh, chief of which is Ilan Omar and uh, Rashida Talib. And uh, you've said that um, uh, when they entered uh, the US Congress, uh, when they entered the House of Representatives, they left at the door their Islamic principles. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, we're being told that we have to or we, we really need to have Muslim politicians at the elite level of governance. Um, what, is, what is actually going to be obtained by that when they don't vote according to Islamic values? Yeah, I might as well just vote for, if I'm going to vote, okay, if I'm going to vote at all, I might as well vote for anyone else. You know, what's the difference? They are, their positions uh, as congressmen and uh, members of parliament, their positions are indistinguishable from other leftists, from from other uh, party members. So, so what's really the utility of voting for them? And there was an interesting statement made by Abdullah Sayed at a recent conference. And Abdullah Sayed ran for governor in Michigan and throughout the country the um, mosques and imams were pr promoting him, encouraging Muslims to uh, contribute to his campaign. And then recently he says that, look, there are no such thing as Muslim interests. There are no such thing as Muslim interests because whatever Muslims, whatever is good for uh, U.S. society as a whole, it, meaning whatever Democrats and the left are pushing for the country as a whole is also going to benefit Muslims. <laughs> so he just he just rattled that statement off without a second thought, without maybe understanding the implications. So why should I, as a Muslim, you're not you don't even think that Muslims have interests as a community. <laughs> this is the problem of, of multiculturalism, right? Uh, of this political multiculturalism. There's nothing really that is specific to Muslims or that Muslims as a community, are we even a community? Like maybe that even is something that they would question that we shouldn't talk about the Muslim community. That's exclusivist. Uh, no, we're just Americans. We're just like everyone else. Even to refer to the Muslim community is uh, to, to be politically incorrect. So it's, it's incoherent. Finally, Daniel, um, when, when considering um, what you've said about uh, secular liberalism and its impact upon the Muslim mind, not just in the West, I suppose, but also across the world, uh, there may be a tendency to, to somewhat feel that um, uh, the, the powers against, uh, against uh, uh, retaining some level of Islamic identity are, are too powerful. Uh, how does one 
uh, stay away from such pessimistic thoughts? And and how does one, I suppose, resist uh, the uh, what I suppose we could only call an, an ideological onslaught against uh, against the human mind. I think that it is easy to become pessimistic. It's easy to think that there is really no hope, uh, but we should always have hope and we should always be optimistic because we know that Allah has promised uh, success for the believers. And as as long as we stick to our religion and, and to the teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah, and uh, we unite on that basis, um, then we have the opportunity for success, uh, inshallah. So when it comes to resisting the, the liberal secular onslaught, I think that you know things can change. The, the global situation can change. You have major events that happen in history that change the face of history and we can only pray that those uh, kinds of major cataclysmic changes within the global sphere um, you know fall in favor of Muslims so there's that but as far as practical things that we should recognize is that liberal secularism is a project it's not just a set of ideas that um, disseminate throughout the world by sheer force of their coherency or cogency. They're not cogent at all, really. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's done through certain kinds of programs and efforts. And, we re- and one of the main components of it is to break up the family and to reduce um, the, the power of the family as a unit of society. People, you know, according to the liberal uh, ideology of individualism that individual freedom sure there's this idea that every individual should have maximum freedom to pursue life as they see fit but the practical reality of that is mean is that people sever ties and uh, sever their relationships with their family because families are a source of obligations families are a source of restriction and those are conceived as inherently negative uh, according to the liberal individualist doctrine so what happens is that people sever those ties and thereby become more um, dependent on the state institutions, corporate state institutions. And this is exactly what the state wants. It wants more control of the population. Individuals are much easier to control and manipulate uh, and to get to buy things than a community, than a family, right, a, a strong family. A strong community. So we, on an individual level, can affect change very practically. We can affect change by making sure that our families are strong, making sure that we have children and we're raising children well, we're raising children as strong Muslims. And if the whole community uh, does that, then that will have a significant, significant impact. And, and it behoves us to observe our enemies, such as in China, right? Uh, what are the Chinese doing? They recognize this, the power of demographics, and that's why they're forcing the Uyghur Muslims to marry Han Chinese, right? That this is warfare on the level of family, right? But the same thing can happen in the West, maybe not as deliberately, but in the West, uh, when you encourage uh, or this feminist notion that Muslim women should or can't have the right to marry non-Muslims, okay, completely contrary to Islam, 
no difference of opinion on that, that Muslim women cannot marry non-Muslims. But you have feminists uh, who are pushing this and even governments who are pushing this. And even uh, another segment of the enemies of, of Muslims, white nationalists, also recognize demographic power, also recognize uh, the importance of family. And, and so if our enemies, what do our enemies know that we don't know, right? Uh, so we, we need to learn from our enemies. And demographics, strong families, um, united communities, this is extremely important institutionally and structurally to resist and to have a fight against the liberal secular onslaught. And before I let you go, um, uh, Daniel, I, I think um, it's probably worth letting our uh, listeners know uh, about your uh, your courses, because I think that they're really helpful in framing uh, the nature of the debate and um, providing, I suppose, a very helpful uh, uh, critique of uh, secular liberalism so that uh, Muslim teachers and Muslim uh, parents uh, can... Um, uh, can confidently discuss uh, these sorts of matters uh, with uh, with particularly young Muslims. Sure, um, my institute, Alesna Institute, um, it can be found online, alesna.org. Um, maybe you can provide the link uh, with the podcast, alasna.org. And then uh, you can register for classes I teach uh, there through an online portal. Um, and then I also write regularly for my um, blog. It's actually a group blog. There's other authors as well, muslimskeptic.com. And you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.